Heavenly Father, we ask that your word would be a delight to us this morning. Oh Lord, we pray that your word would not be considered boring to us, but instead, oh Lord, we pray that it would be a delight for us to examine what our Heavenly Father has spoken. And so, Lord, we pray that we would look at it and love it because it speaks of the salvation that you've granted us in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that we'd have much joy this morning as we consider the salvation that our heart desires from sin and death and judgment that is to come. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we continue our series in the book of Micah, and this morning the picture that is given to us of how the Lord wants to uh, confront the people of Israel about their sin is the idea of a courtroom, the idea of a courtroom. You see this here in the opening verses, that God is holding court, and who are the witnesses? As you have in a courtroom, there are always witnesses uh, to the, the judgments that are being given out. Well, it's the mountains and the hills. Uh, we see in verse 1, verse 1 of Micah chapter 6, listen to what the Lord says, stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. And who are the parties in the court case? Well, it's God and his people Israel. Verse 2, hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. The Lord is the one who is accusing. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. His lodging a charge against Israel. And what, is, what are the charges that are being brought forth in the court? We have the, the witnesses are the hills and the mountains. We have the, 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 the parties of the courtroom case with the, the Lord and his people Israel. What are the charges that, he is lodging, that they're lodging with one another? Well, you can see the charge that the Lord brings forth that the people have been making against him. And that is in verse 3. He says, My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. What are the people of Israel putting forward towards God? Well, God says that they've been claiming that he has burdened them. Another way you can translate the Hebrew word that's been translated burdened in this translation is with the word wearied. How have I wearied you? And what is God's defence? The people of Israel have been complaining that God has been burdening them, has been wearying them. What is God's defence in the courtroom? Well, his defence is to recount how good he has been to Israel, to his people, how good he has been to them. How has God been good to his people? Well, we read in verse 4, the head of the list there, what is the thing that he has done for them? Verse 4, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I'm the one who has been so good to you, I took you out of slavery. You are free agents in the land of Israel. Why? Because of my kindness to you, because of my goodness towards you. And not only that, what else have I done for you? Well, in verse 4 we read, I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron, Aaron and Miriam. I didn't leave you without shepherds. No, I gave you people to guide you into the land of Canaan. I've given you leaders over you. Moses, Miriam, Aaron, they're all acts of kindness from myself. They're gifts from me to you. And what else have I done for you? Well, verse 5, my people remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Baor, answered. Now, you have to know your Old Testament somewhat to know about Balak, king of Moab, and Balaam, son of Baor. If you don't know, you can read a bit in Numbers this afternoon about this incident that happened while the Israelites were in the desert, in the wilderness. Uh, Balak, king of Moab, wanted Balaam to curse the people of Israel. And what did God do? He turned the cursing of Balaam into a blessing. Balak wanted a curse. Balaam was forced by God to bless the people of Israel. 
He turned enemies into blessing the people of Israel. Another act of kindness from him. And then we read that he continued to show kindness in in verse 5. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. We see how this is a reference to the journey that the Israelites made into the promised land, that God watched over them the whole way, all through the wilderness and then across the River Jordan into Gilgal, that the Lord has always looked after his people. And how else has God been good? Well, he hasn't demanded great sacrifices from them either. They didn't have to buy him off with great sacrifices, and that's what's been spoken of in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? It's as though the people of Israel are speaking here, and they're saying, what do I need to buy God off with? What do I have to do? And he says in verse 6, Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Uh, This is a a great sacrifice to make, a calf of a year old. Uh, Why is that a calf, a year old calf, so much uh, greater sacrifice? Well, of course, if you sacrifice a calf that's only a couple of weeks old, uh, you haven't had to feed it and look after it for a year and then see it go to a sacrifice. And so you don't get any benefit from it other than, of course, uh, propitiating God in some way. Uh, so, but God hasn't demanded calves of a year old. And then he goes on to even greater lengths to say that I haven't demanded these things of you either, which you seem to be claiming that I am such a, a terrible God that burdens you with these great sacrifices that have to be made. And what sort of sacrifices are they think, considering? Well, verse 7, it says, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? If God is going to be pleased with me, it has to be that I have to give thousands of rams. Or with 10,000 rivers of oil, I have to give him 10,000 rivers of oil if he's going to be pleased with me. Or, what about verse 7? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Is this what the Lord requires of me? If he's going to be pleased with me, it has to be that I have to give my children to him, as we see some of the pagan religions desire? No. No, he hasn't made these great demands of you. If you look at the sacrificial system and you you need to make a sin offering or a burnt offering to the Lord, he allowed that if you were poor that you could offer just pigeons. You didn't have to offer a year-old calf. You didn't have to offer 10,000 rivers of oil or 1,000 rams. And you certainly did not have to offer your child. God never demanded the sacrifice of a child. God has been so good to the people of Israel. He has not put a burden on them in terms of sacrifices. And how else has he been good to them? Well, what has he demanded of them? What has he required of them? We read in verse 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. What has God required of you? Is it a great burden? No, it's to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Aren't these good things? Aren't these things that everybody's heart testifies to? This is a good thing to do, to act justly. Don't we want others around us to act justly? And don't we want others to love mercy, particularly when they're dealing with us? It's not a great burden, is it, to act justly and love mercy? Isn't that what the human heart always craves, at least from others towards them? God has been so kind to you. How can you say you have a case against God and say, God, you have wearied us? When he has been so kind, he's given you salvation. He's guided you, looked after you, given you leaders, turned curses into blessing, hasn't demanded great sacrifice of you, and the only thing he's required of you is that you are moral in the way that you live. So if anyone's got a case, it's God who has a case against 
the people of Israel, not the people of Israel having a case against God, particularly as the Israelites have not acted justly and they have not loved mercy. And that's what we see in the following verses. In the rest of chapter 6, is the indictment of the Lord on the people of Israel, how they have been behaving. They've been stealing, they've been lying, they've been violent. And we see that in verses 10 through 12. Verse 10 of Micah chapter 6. Am I still to forget, O wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures and the short ether which is accursed? Shall I quit a man with dishonest scales and with a bag of false weights? Her rich men are violent, her people are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. They're stealing from one another by the way that they do their business transactions. They're lying to one another. They're even committing acts of violence there, striking one another. And this is a people who are supposed to act justly and love mercy. And so God has a case against them. And they can't claim all of this situation that we're in forces us to be deceitful and to act unjustly towards others. I mean, it would have been terrible. Micah was living through one of the most awful periods of Israelite history. As the Assyrians came down, and you probably saw uh, the destruction uh, of, of many towns, you may have witnessed them personally, and what happens when situation is desperate? You start to want to steal from others. You start to want to be violent towards your fellow man because you're worried that you're not going to have the resources that you need to survive. But God doesn't say, oh, in situations of war... Oh, yes, you can hurt your fellow man for survival. No, you're supposed to act justly and love mercy. And so you can't claim that you get out of this. And so God has a charge against the people of Israel. Not the people of Israel have a charge against God. Because God's defence is perfect. He's been so good to them. How can they charge him as being one who puts a burden upon them? And I think this is an excellent lesson for us today. An excellent word for us today as Christians because so often we can feel burdened. We can feel burdened as Christians, that we as Christians have an extra burden. How do we feel sometimes that the Lord has wearied us, that he has burdened us? Well, sadly, we often feel burdened because we can't engage in the sinful pleasures that we want to take a part of. Our sinful flesh still desires sinful pleasures, and we know that God bans them from us. And it feels like a burden that he cuts those sinful pleasures off from us. And then, of course, it's not just the things that we can't do. There's the things that the Lord wants us to do. And we feel burdened by them as well. The encouragement to study God's word, to love God's word, to spend time with him in prayer, to take on those religious exercises, to, to worship him with God's people, to, ha in, and to have fellowship with God's people. Oh, it's a burden to speak to other Christians. What a burden. What a burden to read God's word. What a burden to pray. And so we feel like God is wearying us and then, of course, the extra persecutions that we experience as Christians. We can be hated by people. And it's just because we're a Christian. It feels like a burden that the Lord has placed upon us. And then, of course, it's the suffering that we experience in this world often feels like a burden. That God, we're the people of God. How can we experience suffering along with the rest of mankind for the sinfulness of this world? We can see the sickness that comes upon Christians. And it's a burden that we feel the Lord has placed unduly upon us. Or, of course, even we feel at the moment with the, the response to sickness in our nation, with the lockdowns that we're experiencing, the restrictions here. Oh, it's such a burden to be a Christian. Can't we be exempt as Christians? It's such a burden that we're experiencing. And so we have a complaint to make against God. What should we remember when we're tempted to complain against God and say... 
What a burden you've placed upon us, God. We should remember that God says to us, I have been very, very good to you. I've been very, very good to you. How has God been good to us? Well, in similar ways that he expresses his goodness to the people of Israel. He has saved us. He's given us an exodus as well. The people of Israel, they had an exodus from slavery in Egypt. We also had an exodus. And it's all by God's mighty hand that he has redeemed us from slavery to sin, from slavery to Satan, from slavery to the death that we fear so much and the judgment that is to come. He has redeemed us from those. He has saved us. How else has he saved us? How else has he helped us? How else has he shown goodness to us? As we're tempted to say, oh, you put such a a big burden upon us. Well, he's given us leaders in our churches. He reminded the people of Israel, I gave you Moses, I gave you Aaron, I gave you Miriam. And God has always given Christians pastors to look after them down through the centuries. And even here today at Des Moines Baptist, you have myself, you have Danny, you have Ray, you have Josh, you have Ash. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've had lots of other leaders. Myself, growing up, I had different leaders in the church who were there to shepherd me and guide me, just as Moses and Aaron and Miriam were there to guide the people of Israel in the past. And if you're going to be on the face of this earth for any length of time, you no doubt will have other leaders who God will raise up and place over you as part of his goodness towards you, his kindness towards you. How else has God been good to us? Well, he's often thwarted our enemies. They've intended to curse us, and he's turned it around and made it a blessing. Just as he turned around the curse that Balak wanted into a blessing, God has done that again and again for us. If you look over your life, how often have people cursed you in some way and it's ended up being a blessing to you? And, of course, the protection that he often gives. He protected the people of Israel through their wanderings. They made it into the promised land, and God has protected us from much pain that we deserve. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Much suffering we should have deserved, but instead in his kindness he's protected us and looked after us. How else has God been good to us? Well, he hasn't demanded great sacrifices from us. He hasn't demanded great sacrifices from us. He's never demanded year-old calves. He's never demanded a thousand rams, ten thousand rivers of oil. He's never demanded you to sacrifice one of your children. Is that because God doesn't care about sin? doesn't care about sin and so there's no need for a sacrifice to be made. No, God cares immensely about sin. He cared so much that he sent his son, his firstborn son, to pay the price for our sin. He doesn't demand us to sacrifice our children. Why? Because he sacrificed his son, his firstborn son for us. He's been so kind to us. He does not put a burden upon our shoulders ultimately because his son took the burden that we deserve and bore it for us. How else has God been so good to us as we were tempted to say, oh, it's such a burden to be a Christian? Well, all he's required of us is that we act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with him. He hasn't demanded great sacrifice in terms of monetary sacrifice or children, all he's required is that we act justly and love mercy. And this is even easier in the New Covenant when we consider his laws, that so much of the ceremonial laws have been wiped away. He's not interested in the yokes that men love to put upon one another. 
He's only interested in justice and mercy. You see in Acts chapter 15, that passage we had read before us, uh, before for us, it spoke about the yoke that men were wanting to place of circumcision. The Gentiles must be circumcised in order to be saved. Rubbish. God just wants you to act justly and love mercy because you are already saved in Christ Jesus. And so if we complain, if we complain that, oh, it's such a burden to be a Christian. Oh, look what God has done to us. What are we like? We're like a whinging child. A whinging child who has a complaint against a very, very, very kind father. A father who has repeatedly looked after the child, cared for the child, and forgiven the child again and again and again for offences. A God who has taken away the burdens that the child really should be shouldering themselves if they want to be a true person in this world and has had compassion and kindness. So all the burdens that the Lord gives us, they're so light in comparison to what we deserve. And this is what we see in the New Testament, where the Lord Jesus himself says, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I'm not saying that there is no burden and no yoke that the Lord has put upon us. Yes, he does expect us to act justly and love mercy. He does expect us to suffer in this world. But it is a light yoke. It is a light burden. It is an easy yoke. It is an easy burden that the Lord has placed upon us when we consider his goodness to us. And this is what John says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 as well. He said, this is love for God, to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. They're not burdensome for those who recognise the goodness of God. So instead of grumbling and complaining about the burden that God has given us, and particularly while we might be tempted to do so in restrictions... What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. What does it mean to act justly? What does it mean to act justly? Well, it means to do what is right, to, to listen to God's moral law and then to keep it. What does that mean? Well, it means you don't disobey authorities. You don't murder and get angry with one another. You don't commit adultery. You don't steal. You don't lie. And you don't covet. That's what it means to act justly. And just because there's a pandemic on and resources are scarce, it doesn't excuse breaking God's laws. Just because you're in pain doesn't excuse breaking God's laws. Like it didn't excuse the breaking of God's laws by the Israelites because there was a war on. And rich people were concerned that their lifestyles were going to be hampered. And so what do I do? Take advantage of those around me. That's not what we're called to do. As Christians, we're called to act justly. And what else should we do? We should love mercy. What's mercy? Well, the word there in the Hebrew is that word that's often used to describe God's love, his loving kindness. What's mercy? It's kindness, it's love, it's graciousness, it's forgiveness. And during a pandemic, during the pandemic that we're in, there are new ways for Christians to love mercy. It's supposed to be merciful and kind and 
loving to those around us, gracious and forgiving of others all the time, and that includes during a pandemic. And there's new ways that we can love one another. What am I talking about? Well, we can show mercy towards those who are suffering from illness, mercy towards those who are suffering from COVID. We should also be showing mercy to those who are suffering from the government response to COVID. We should be showing kindness to those who have no money, who are really struggling to make ends meet. We may be concerned about our resources being hampered by the lockdown, but we should not use that as an excuse to not be looking out for those around us. What else should we be doing? Well, if we love mercy, we'll be showing mercy towards those with different opinions to us about the responses that we should be making to the pandemic as well. The government has different responses that they're making and from state to state there's different responses even between them. The federal government seems to have a different response as well as to what they think of things. And of course, therefore, Christians have different ideas as to what the response should be about vaccinations, about lockdowns, about benefits being given out. There's so many opinions. The more I listen to people, the more I see the variedness of people's ideas. And we need to be ready to show mercy, kindness, love to those who differ with us about these things. I'm increasingly hearing of Christians falling out with pastors because of the responses of pastors to the pandemic. And then I'm also hearing about pastors falling out with pastors about matters to do with the pandemic. Pastors who won't even speak to one another anymore within a church. What's going on? Where's the mercy? Where's the kindness? Act justly, yes, but love mercy. Love kindness. So how do we keep going, particularly when things are different here in Australia? And this is, I, we haven't seen this kind of thing in decades. How do we keep going, acting justly and loving mercy and walking humbly with our God in such times? Well, it's by an increased understanding of God's goodness to us, God's kindness to us, and particularly in his salvation given to us at the cross. It's interesting, when God makes a defence about the burden that God has, uh, when God makes a defence about the charge of, that his people are making against him, that he has burdened them, what is the first thing he says to the people of God about his kindness? What is it? Look with me now, verse 4. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. He puts the exodus front and centre. Everything after that, God's kindnesses, they're like footnotes, really, to the exodus. And that should be the same for us as well. As we are struggling to act justly and love mercy as God's people, what should we be remembering? We should be remembering how kind God is. What should we remember about God's kindness? It should be that he has given us an exodus out of sin, out of death, out of the judgment to come. And if we remember that, how is it helpful? How is it helpful? Well, there, as we look at the cross, we see justice and we see mercy displayed by God. And it reminds us to be just 
God took justice very seriously there, but he also took mercy very seriously at the cross. Both justice and mercy there at the cross as the Lord is paying for the sins of his people. It's at the cross that we see what? We see the justice and mercy of the Father in sending his Son. What else do we see at the cross? We see the justice and mercy of Jesus Christ, the Son, as he pays for the sin of God's people. What do we see at the cross? We see the justice and the mercy of the Holy Spirit as he takes that atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and applies it to us. There at the cross, we see the justice and mercy of God. And therefore, we are motivated to then act justly and love mercy even during a pandemic. Not to earn salvation. No, 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 no. We don't act justly and love mercy so that we can have an exodus. No, we act justly and love mercy because we're thankful that God has already given us an exodus, that he's already redeemed us from slavery. And we already have salvation. Death is just a doorway by which we go into the next period of our salvation, the eternal phase of our salvation. And I think the cross is then, therefore very helpful for us and particularly when it comes to loving mercy, to loving kindness, to loving those around us. Because we see how difficult it is for unbelievers to do this second part that the Lord requires of all people. He requires that people act justly and love mercy. And because of common grace, most people know what is right and wrong. But they don't love to show mercy. They don't love mercy. You see this in other religions. They can be exceedingly vicious. Why? Because they have no grounds for forgiveness. They have no great grounds for forgiveness that Christians have in the cross. And you see this even with the secular world. For all its relativism and that there is no right and wrong, they still have a right and wrong. You start to talk about racism with people, they will say it's wrong. But do they love mercy? No, they cancel people. You could have said something decades ago and be completely repentant now and say, I was such a young idiot when I said that. No, still cancelled. Why? They don't love mercy. Why don't they love mercy? Because they have no grounds for mercy shown at the cross, whereas we do. We have a grounds for mercy. We love mercy because we see it displayed at the cross. And so you see a softness, a mercifulness, a lovingness in Christians, and particularly older Christians. You can see this. If they've walked with the Lord for decades, there's a softness to them, a gentleness. And I see younger Christians often accuse older Christians of being soft. They're too soft. You look at the elders of the church, oh, they're soft. Why does that happen? Well, when we're younger, we think everybody should be perfect like us. Everybody should be Joel Radford, because I know how to act justly. And if everybody acts justly like I act justly, then everything will be okay. And we're tempted to put yokes on others, like the Pharisees wanted to put yokes of circumcision in Acts chapter 15. We want to put those upon others. But why do Christians grow softer and more mellow with time? Well, it's because they've grown to really love mercy. Love mercy. Why? Well, it's because with time, they've been able to consider more the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. They've been able to consider it more. They've been able to consider more of the seriousness of sin, 
They've also been able to consider more the mercy of God in forgiving sin. And they've also had more time to rack up sins and see God forgiving again and again and again over decades their sin. And so what does that mean? They love mercy. They act justly. They're not antinomian. They don't say, oh, no, we we don't care about the law anymore. They act justly, but they love mercy. They love the mercy of God that's been shown them, and they love, therefore, to show mercy to others, to show mercy to those around them. Reformed Christians love to talk about grace a lot. They love to talk about grace a lot. But sadly, they can be good at receiving grace, but not very good at giving it at times. Love to receive grace from God, but not very good at giving grace to their fellow man. But that's what God requires of us. He requires us to love mercy, to love grace, and to exercise it to others. So do we want to stop being a whining kid? A whining kid about the burden that our Father has given us. Do we want to stop being that whining kid and to act justly and love mercy as a joy and not a burden? Well, we need to remember God's kindness to us. His many kindnesses. His many kindnesses. Oatman's hymn is very good at reminding us of this. He says, when upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed. He's not denying the fact that life can be hard. When you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, what are you supposed to do? Count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. Count your blessings, name them one by one, count your blessings, see what God hath done. That's what Micah 6 is all about, counting the blessings of God to God's people. And therefore, there's a motivation to do God's work. And what's the great blessing that I've said that we have to remember front and centre? Well, it's our salvation that we have. Remember, remember, comes up in the text, remember what God hath done for you, and particularly his mercy, his kindness in salvation. Sing of your exodus with hymns like Wesley's, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Sing hymns like that and you won't forget your exodus. You won't forget your exodus. And therefore you will be motivated to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Humanity needs to be shown mercy. Humanity needs to be shown mercy. And it's the people of God who really know how to show show mercy. So let us be gracious. Let us be merciful to those around us. But if Christianity this morning still looks burdensome to you, you look at the Bible, you look at what's, what's in it and you see that it's got this massive yoke. It looks like such a big yoke that the Lord places on you. What, I've got to stop those sinful pleasures and I've got to start doing those things? How boring. If that is the case for you this morning, that you think Christianity 
looks like a burden. You find it terribly hard to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with God. Is it because, is it because you don't know the redemption in Christ Jesus? You've never had an exodus. You're still enslaved to sin. You're still facing eternal judgment. If that is you, be afraid. Be afraid. God will destroy you. Verse 13 of Micah 6 applies to you. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. He's begun it already. With the sufferings you experience in this world, that is the judgment of God already being poured out upon you. But it's just a small few drops of the great goblet of wrath that you will be forced to consume for all eternity. If Christianity looks like a burden to you, be afraid. Because it shouldn't. For the person who understands the salvation that they have in Christ Jesus, it's not a burden. If it looks like a burden, be afraid. And come to Christ now. Trust that God's firstborn son was sacrificed for your sins. And experience the great exodus that comes through having Jesus pay the penalty that you deserve for him being ruined and destroyed on the cross in your place. And then experience the joy of the yoke, the very light burden that the Lord puts upon you to act justly and love mercy and to walk humbly with him. Let us come to God in prayer. Let's speak with him now. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, you have all been so kind, so good to us. We ask that you would forgive us for grumbling about the light yoke and the light burden that you have placed upon us. And we ask that you would help us to remember your kindnesses, remember your goodness to us, particularly in saving us, so that we joyfully, rather than in grumbling, we joyfully act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with you. And if there's anyone listening to my voice right now who thinks badly of you, who thinks Christianity is such a burden, oh Lord, we ask that you would help them to see your mercy now and that they would trust in Christ's work of the cross and experience the salvation that we enjoy. We pray these things in your name. Amen.